0: I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 2, verse 11. We have here the same pattern that we saw last week. Uh, Last week, Paul told the Ephesians and us as well by extension that once we were dead in sins and trespasses, but we've been made alive with Christ. Uh, We have been created in Him to do good works which the Lord has prepared in in advance. So you've got a pattern of reflecting on uh, our plight without Christ then what God has done in Christ to save us and to the end, to, the, to what end he's done so. Now he's getting a little more specific to the Ephesian situation. They were uh, Gentiles, not Jews. Uh, and, and he is reflecting, asking them to reflect on that and us reflect on that as well. Here now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We'll stop right there this week and we'll pick up the other uh, two, two, three verses there uh, next week. Well, it's very providential that we had a baptism this morning. I mean, what a perfect passage for uh, today. That we would have a baptism, and as well, it, it talking about peace with God, and we've been reflecting on Jesus being the Prince of Peace, and looking forward to uh, you know the 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 Christmas season uh, when we celebrate that on Christmas Day, Christ coming into the world, and looking forward to His return again to bring uh, universal peace. We just sang about it uh, in the, the hymn that uh, we 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 sang together, but this uh, this this. Uh, providential fact that we had a baptism this morning uh, is giving us a, a living illustration of matters to which Paul is referring to in the passage before us. And I want us to stop for a moment. I've given you a, a larger catechism question. Uh, the larger catechism was written in the 1640s and uh, we tend to not look at it very often because it's 200 and some odd questions and uh, as you can see, they're quite long, and people memorize this as a teaching tool. We tend to memorize the shorter catechism, which is only uh, 105 questions, I believe, and, uh, and and they're very shorter, very short answers. So much shorter than the larger catechism. Uh, when you read the original documents, it says that the shorter catechism was for those who who did not have uh, the capacity or the mental ability. memorize the larger catechism so uh, times have changed i think most of us would have trouble memorizing the shorter catechism much less the larger catechism but one of the questions that's included in the larger catechism is this one i put on the uh, in the handout that you have 167 Uh, how is our baptism to be improved by us the needful but much neglected duty and you think if it was neglected in the 1640s how much is it neglected today The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others, as we were this morning. Now, how are we to improve it? By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it. The privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements, and by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, into whom we are baptized, for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness. Conversation means our lifestyle, the way that we live our lives. As those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. So if you're baptized today, you're supposed to be doing that. And I'll expect everybody to have it memorized by next week so you can reflect on those things. But I want us to do that this morning uh, during the sermon because uh, in one sense he's, he's doing that for the Ephesians this morning. Paul wants his readers to uh, reflect upon what Christ has done for them and promised to them. Paul is telling the Ephesians to remember. He says it twice in verses 11 and 12. And then in 13 through 18 he reminds them, uh, after reminding them of the problem, their past, the, the, the uh, sinfulness in which they lived, 13 through 18, he reminds them of the solution to their their hopelessness. And if we back up and look at the entire argument of Ephesians, we can see the reason he is bringing these reminders to us. Uh, He wants to encourage his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. You'll see that in chapter 4. He's making an entire argument, reminding them over and over again uh, of where they once were, and what Christ has done for them. Remember that. And he's continuing to pray for them. He prays for them in chapter 1. He's going to pray for them again in chapter 3, that they would apprehend these things, that they would grow in these things. And he wants that to happen so that they can live differently, so that their lives would reflect these truths, so that they can be grateful for what God has done for them and move out into a life of service to the Lord. He knows we need to to, to remember these things because we have a tendency to forget you know, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we do, those thing, we do those things in remembrance of Christ. We remember what he did for us. It's important for us to continue to remember. Because when, we, uh, w- when the Bible talks about apostasy, it's always in reference to forgetting. Forgetting the great deliverance. Forgetting what God has done for us. And then in other gods look attractive at that point. We forget how much he's done for us and we lose uh, the, the sense of duty that we have to this God who's been so gracious to us. So we want to be reminded of those things this morning as we uh, dive into the text, uh, and, and we'll start by looking at verses 11 through 12 that outlines for us the problem, the problem that all humans have when they are born, intimacy with God and His people. You'll notice that verse 11 refers to circumcision. Uh, this is why I'm saying that it's providential that we had a baptism this morning because it gives us a living illustration of the matters to which Paul is referring to in the passage before us. Circumcision, circumcision was the Old Testament equivalent of baptism. Paul tells the Colossians. There's a lot, lot in common with the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says that you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So baptism is the circumcision of Christ. So what is circumcision? Uh, I won't go into medical details on that, uh, but Genesis 17 tells us that circumcision was a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. A covenant, a promise that said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be a God to you and your children and your children's children throughout the generations, and and they will be my people. So shortly after an Israelite boy was born, he was circumcised. And it was a sign that he was united to God and his people and had the right to enjoy all the benefits of that relationship. And as the child grew, he had this constant daily reminder that he was different that he had a relationship to God, that indeed he had an obligation to follow the Lord and to be faithful to him with his life. And if he did not do that, then he was considered a covenant breaker. So it's not just an outward sign, something that uh, people had in their flesh. There needed to be an inward reality of that sign. So Moses repeatedly told the Israelites, look, Don't just circumcise your bodies, circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. You'll see one example in Deuteronomy 10. Circumcise your heart. There needed to be an inward reality to match the outward sign. And that's the the same is true of baptism as well. Uh, we, We baptize children. And, uh, you know, it's an engagement to be the Lord's. It signifies all the blessings that come with being united to him. Like we, like we outlined, adoption and forgiveness and, and union with Christ and regeneration and, and ultimately resurrection. These things are signified and sealed in baptism. And, and uh, when, uh, when a child grows up, we remind them of these things. You were baptized. Remember that? and uh, you are obligated to follow the Lord. Uh, he's your God, and we teach the child to follow the Lord. And if he does not, then he becomes a covenant breaker. And there's discipline that comes with that from the church. Now, in the Old Testament, if a Gentile wanted to be, uh, become a follower of, of the God of Israel, Yahweh, they had, uh, they, once they expressed that desire, they had to be circumcised in order to become one of the people of God. And so in baptism, we, what we did this morning was not a, a children's, an infant baptism, obviously. Uh, it was a, a believer's baptism. Uh, Madison expressed a desire to become part of the church, and so she took the covenant sign upon herself as she made vows to the Lord. Now, in the text before us, Paul is asking the Ephesians to remember that, that at one time they were the uncircumcision. They were not part of the people of God. They did not have a special relationship with the Lord. God was not their God. They they had no relationship with him at all. And they bore no sign of the covenant on their bodies and nor did they have the inward reality to which the sign would have pointed. Paul's reminding them of that. You remember the story of David and Goliath. You know, David... Uh, David's brothers are at the front uh, where the, all the fighting is going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And they've got this giant there, Goliath, uh, who is cursing God and cursing the Israelites and challenging them to send out their best guy. And let's, let's do a one-on-one, mano a mano. And uh, if, if you beat me, then uh, you, know, you, can have the, you can win the battle. And if I beat you, then we win the battle. And, of course, the Israelites are all afraid and David is a young guy, and his father sends him to the front to take some food to his brothers who are in the army. And David hears all this going on. He sees this guy making this challenge, uh, and he sees the fear of the Israelites, and he hears the soldiers talking about how Saul is going to reward the, the guy who steps up and faces Goliath. And so David says, First Samuel 17, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, this guy's uncircumcised. He has no relationship to God. Who is he? We have God on our side. And I'm sure he's wondering why no one's doing anything about this situation with this guy, cursing God and cursing God's people. And he refers to him as this uncircumcised Philistine. He's saying, This guy has no relationship with our God. His gods are actually no gods at all. When it describes us, it describes these people as the uncircumcision, it means several things that he outlines for us. There's no relationship with God. Verse 12 You're the uncircumcision, and remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're one of the uncircumcision, it means that you're all these five things, separated from Christ, alienated from, from the people of God, strangers to the promises, without hope and without God in the world. Now, first, they were separate uh, from without Christ, Christ is uh, the Messiah. He's saying, "Look, you are separate from the promise of the Messiah." The Jews in the Old Testament were expecting the Messiah to come and deliver and save them from their enemies, and the Gentiles were ignorant of this hope of salvation. The Ephesians were ignorant of this. They they were separated from that promise because they were the uncircumcisions, the uncircumcision. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were separated, alienated, estranged. Uh, That's that's what's being expressed by that word. They were others, them, over there, not the people of God. They did not have God's will and word revealed to them. They were not under God's rule. Uh, They were strangers to the covenants of promise, Now, it uses the word covenants uh, in the plural. Uh, We understand it to be one covenant, but it's repeated. God made promises to Abraham, Genesis 15, uh, but he also made promises to David. He made promises uh, to to Moses. Going back, he made promises to to Noah, all the while extending grace and saying, in, in essence, I will be your God and you will be my people. He continuously reminds them of his promises and expands on the promise that he made. So we, we talk about a single covenant of grace, but we can also talk about it in the plural because it is repeated and expanded upon throughout time until it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So they were strangers to all the promises God made to his people. Promises, especially the Emmanuel principle. We call Jesus Emmanuel. We sing uh, at Christmas, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us. It's the Emmanuel principle, uh, the, the principle of the covenant that God will be with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. So they were strangers to that. They were on the outside looking in. They had no hope because they were they had no promise from God. And God is the only foundation of hope in this world. Without God in the world, that could mean that they were atheists, which is certainly true. Uh, they were at least been Pagans, polytheists worship many gods, or animists worshiping nature and things of that, that, that sort. But Jehovah, the one true living God, was not their God. They didn't have any interest in him. They were without him. That left them hopeless. They had been forsaken of him. They were, they were in the world, left in the world. They stood outside God's community. That's what he's reminding them of. Because they were uncircumcised, they were outside of that community. Now, to bring it into our context, we're all Gentiles, but our, we're a little different from the Ephesians. And the way that Paul's talking about them, he's talking about them in relation to the people of God in the Old Testament and how they've been brought in. Now, we, uh, I would venture to say that the, the overwhelming majority of people here have been baptized. So we have been uh, introduced to the promises of God. Uh, we are in church, so we're probably members of the, of the visible church, of so the people of God. We have his word, we have his promises. Uh, we have all these things that we uh, enjoy as God's people, or at least as children of the covenant, uh, people who have been baptized Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning uh, is, uh, do we remember? Do we remember uh, what it would be like if we did not have any of that? If we did not have those promises, do we remember how much Christ has done for us? And that's what that passage, that catechism question about improving your baptism is trying to help us remember Remember the privileges and the blessings that the Lord has showered down upon you by virtue of you being a part of the covenant. And if you're not one of those people today, if you've never been baptized, never been a part of a visible church, you don't make a profession of faith, uh, you know, you're, you're alienated from God, you're estranged from Him, but there's a wonderful solution, a wonderful solution. Gracious solution, and I want to look at that very quickly in the next few minutes. What is the solution, and what has Christ done for His people? Well, first of all, they have been brought near. It tells us in verses verse 13, brought near. We once were alienated, we were estranged, we were on the outside, we were far off, and now we've been brought near. Brought near. Uh, What a wonderful picture he paints for us. You are far off, you've been brought near. You were shunned, you were pushed out, and now you're being pulled in, pulled close, embraced. What a privilege that is. Uh, how, How are we brought near? It's by the blood of Christ. Paul tells us that those who are far away, that those who are estranged and alienated, can be brought near by the blood of Christ. And when he says blood of Christ, uh, he's using a figure of speech. uh, It's called a synecdoche. A synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a part is used for the whole or a whole is used for the part. For example, uh, a captain of a ship might say, all hands on deck, all hands on deck. Well, he wants more than just some hands to come up. I mean, he wants their whole bodies as well. But the hands are especially the important part because they're going to pull on a rope. They're going to do the work, the hands. So a hand is used for the whole. We also use it in reverse. We might refer to a police officer as the law. Oh, here comes the law. You better, you better act right. You know, he's not the law. He represents the law. He's just one, uh, one servant to enforce the law. But we refer to it with the bigger term. These are synecdoches. So when when, uh, Paul says we're brought near by the blood of Christ, he's talking about a part for the whole. All that Christ did for us in shedding his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin and no reconciliation of sinners with God. That's what Christ did on the cross. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for sin to be a sacrifice for our sin. And, and, and he fulfilled all the obedience that was required in his life for us. So everything that he did is represented by that term, the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice of himself, by his service to us. Because of what he did, we can be brought near. We, can, we who, are, who are on the outside, who are alienated, estranged, we can be brought near because of what Christ did by shedding his blood for us. And what Christ did was he, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that existed. And he's, he's referring to the uh, temple, uh, giving us a picture of the temple. Now, if you've ever seen a diagram of the temple, in the very center you've got the Holy of Holies. And that's where the uh, only the high priest entered, only once a year, and he did so to make atonement for the sins of the people. He brought in the sacrifice, sprinkled the blood there on the altar, and uh, he was only allowed to go in there. And then you had uh, certain courts in concentric—it's not circles, but tri- I guess rectangles. Out, you had the 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 court of uh, the, the court of the Israelites, and then on the outside, you had a court a court of Gentiles. The very outside, so Gentiles could not even get close to the Holy of Holies, to where where God's throne was, where His presence was centralized. They were way out on the outer edges of the temple. But when Christ died, what happened? It says the curtain of the temple, the curtain, very thick linen curtain that separated the Holy of Holies uh, from, from being seen, it was divided from top to bottom when Christ died. And the way was opened up. So anybody could walk in there. Anybody could see in there. It was no longer necessary because the blood had been shed, the ultimate sacrifice had been made, and now there was access to God. Those who were on the outside looking in, those who were way out in the back in the court of the Gentiles, now they could go in. They could have access to God directly could have a relationship with him. That's what Christ, he broke down the wall of hostility. And not only between God and man, but between Jew and Gentile. He's made the two one, he says. Uh, Broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility that existed between us. He created in himself one new man in place of the two. So there's no longer Jew and Gentile, there's just his people. He abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. He fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled the law in his life. He kept it perfectly as our substitute in our place for us. And uh, he fulfilled the ceremonial law. He became the ultimate sacrifice. There's no need for any more sacrifices. All that the temple stood for, all that the priests, all all that that pointed to was him. And when he came and, and sacrificed himself, shed his blood for us, all that no longer needed to be duplicated. He reconciled us to God. We were on the outside. We didn't have a relationship with him. Broken. And now he reconciles us, Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the enmities, the word there. We were enemies with God. And he, he, he killed that. I love that. That's just a harsh term for it. But he destroyed the enmity. So that he could have a relationship with us. And he preached peace to us. He preached peace to those who were far off, to the Gentiles, and preached, preached peace to those who were near. Preached, he, uh, it's the word for the gospel. It's proclama, pro- proclaiming the good news. He proclaimed the good news of peace, that you can have a relationship with God. So now we have access. Verse 18. Through him we both, Jew and gentile alike, have access in one spirit to the Father. We were far off, estranged, alienated, uh, but we've been brought near through the blood of Christ. We have access to him, not only as his friends, but as his children. Now, Paul wants us to remember these things. Remember, remember, Paul says. Uh, remember these things. If, if you are a, a baptized believer today, you know, you remember... What Christ has done for you and walk in that let it influence the way you live your life Uh, give glory and, and thanksgiving to him not only with your lips but with your lives as well and to rejoice in the salvation that you enjoy and to share it with others it's good news you preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near and if you are not one of those baptized believers today you see the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ and what he did. And it's a, it's a free gift. It's not, it's not what you do. Uh, it's not you cleaning up your act. It's what Christ has already done on the cross in his life and his death. It's just resting and receiving him. Resting in his finished work and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. And you will be brought near to the Lord. Let's pray together.